Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz, Chapter 7, with Study Guide. You can acquire the habit of happiness. In this chapter, I discuss the subject of happiness, not from a philosophical, but from a medical standpoint. Dr. John A. Schindler defines happiness as a state of mind in which our thinking is pleasant a good share of the time. From a medical standpoint, and also an ethical standpoint, I do not believe that a simple definition can be approved upon. Happiness is good medicine. Happiness is native to the human mind and its physical machine. We think better, perform better, feel better, and are healthier when we are happy. Even our physical sense organs work better. Russian psychologist K. Ketchevich tested people when they were thinking pleasant and unpleasant thoughts. He found that when thinking pleasant thoughts, they could see better, taste better, smell better, and hear better, and detect finer differences in touch. Dr. William Bates proved that eyesight improves immediately when the individual is thinking pleasant thoughts or visualizing pleasant scenes. Vision educator Margaret Corbett found that memory is greatly improved and that his mind is relaxed when the subject is thinking pleasant thoughts. Psychosomatic medicine has proved that our stomach, liver, heart, and all our internal organs function better when we are happy. Thousands of years ago, wise old King Solomon said in his Proverbs, A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit drieth up the bones. It is significant, too, that both Judaism and Christianity prescribe joy, rejoicing, thankfulness, cheerfulness as a means toward righteousness and the good life. Harvard psychologists studied the correlation between happiness and criminality and concluded that the old Dutch proverb, happy people are never wicked, was scientifically true. They found that the majority of criminals came from unhappy homes, had a history of unhappy relationships. A 10-year study of frustration at Yale University brought out that much of what we call immortality and hostility to others is brought by our own unhappiness. Dr. Schindler has laid that unhappiness is the sole cause of all psychosomatic ills and that happiness is the only cure. The very word disease means a state of unhappiness. Disease. A recent survey showed that by and large, optimistic, cheerful businessmen who looked on the bright side of things were more successful than the pessimistic businessmen. It appears that in our popular thinking about happiness, we have managed to get the cart before the horse. Be good, we say, and you will be happy. I will be happy, we say to ourselves, if I could be successful and healthy. Be kind and loving to other people, and you will be happy. It might be nearer the truth if we said, be happy, and you will be good, more successful, healthier, feel, and act more charitable toward others. Common Misconceptions About Happiness Happiness is not something that is earned or deserved. Happiness is not a moral issue any more than the circulation of the blood is a moral issue. Both are necessary to health and well-being. Happiness is simply a state of mind in which our thinking is pleasant a good share of the time. If you wait until you deserve to think pleasant thoughts, you are likely to think unpleasant thoughts concerning your own unworthiness. Happiness is not the reward of virtue, said Spinsonia in his book of Ethics, but virtue itself. Nor do we delight in happiness because we restrain our lusts, but, on the contrary, because we delight in it, therefore we are able to restrain them. The pursuit of happiness is not selfish. 
Many sincere people are deterred from seeking happiness because they feel that it would be selfish or wrong. Unselfish does make for happiness, for it not only gets our minds directed outward away from ourselves in our introspection, our faults, sins, troubles, or unpleasant thoughts, or pride in our goodness, but it also enables us to express ourselves creatively and fulfill ourselves in helping others. One of the most pleasant thoughts to any human being is the thought that he is needed, that he is important enough and competent enough to help and add to the happiness of some other human being. However, if we make a moral issue out of happiness and conceive of it as something to be earned as a sort of reward for being unselfish, we are very apt to feel guilty about wanting happiness. Happiness comes from being and acting unselfishly as a natural accompaniment to the being and acting, not as a payoff or prize. If we are rewarded for being unselfish, the next logical step is to assume that more self-abrogating and miserable we make ourselves, the happier we will be. The premise leads to the absurd conclusion that the way to be happy is to be unhappy. If there is any moral issue involved, it is the one on the side of happiness rather than unhappiness. The attitude of unhappiness is not only painful, it is mean and ugly, said William James. What can be more base and unworthy than the pinning, pulling, moping mode, no matter by what outward ills it may have been engendered? What is more injurious to others? What is less helpful as a way out of the difficulty? It but fastens and perpetrates the trouble which occasioned it and increases the total evil of the situation. Happiness does not lie in the future, but in the present. We are never living, but only hoping to live and looking forward always to being happy. It is inevitable that we never are so, said Blaise Pascal, the 17th century mathematician and philosopher. I have found that one of the most common causes of unhappiness among my patients is that they are attempting to live their lives on the deferred payment plan. They do not live or enjoy life now, but wait for some future event or occurrence. They will be happy when they get married, when they get a better job, when they get a house paid for, when they get their children to college, when they have completed some task or won some victory. Invariably, they are disappointed. Happiness is a mental habit, a mental attitude, and if it is not learned and practiced in the present, it is never experienced. It cannot be made contingent upon solving some external problem. When one problem is solved, another appears to take its place. Life is a series of problems. If you are to be happy at all, you must be happy, period. Not happy because of. I have now reigned above 50 years in victory or peace, said the Caliph Ab al-Roman I, the 8th century ruler of Iberia, believed by my subjects, dreaded by my enemies, and respected by my allies. Riches and honors, power and pleasure have waited on my call nor does any earthling blessing appear to have been wanting to my felicity. In this situation, I have diligently numbered the days of pure and genuine happiness which have fallen to my lot. They amount to 14. Happiness is a mental habit that can be cultivated and developed. Most people are about as happy as they make up their minds to be, said Abraham Lincoln. Happiness is purely internal, said psychologist Dr. Matthew N. Chappell, author of In the Name of Common Sense and Back to Self-Reliance. 
It is produced not by objects, but by ideas, thoughts, and attitudes, which can be developed and constructed by the individual's own activities, irrespective of the environment. No one other than a saint can be 100% happy all the time. And as George Bernard Shaw quipped, we would probably be miserable if we were. But we can, by taking thought and making a simple decision, be happy and think pleasant thoughts at large share of the time. Regarding the multitude of little events and circumstances of the daily living that now makes us unhappy. To a large extent, we react to petty annoyances, frustrations, and the like with grumpiness, dissatisfaction, resentment, irritability, purely out of habit. We have practiced reacting that way too long. It has become habitual. Much of this habitual unhappiness reaction originated because of some event that we interpreted as a blow to our self-esteem. A driver honks his horn at us unnecessarily. Someone interrupts and doesn't pay attention while we're talking. Someone doesn't come through for us as we think he should. Even impersonal events can be interpreted and reacted to as affronts to our self-esteem. The bus we wanted to catch had to be late. It had to go and rain when we had planned to play golf. Traffic had to get into a snarl just when we needed to catch the plane. We react with anger, resentment, self-pity, in other words, unhappiness. Stop letting things push you around. The best cure I have found for this sort of thing is to use unhappiness's own weapon, self-esteem. Have you ever been to a TV show and seen the master of ceremonies manipulate the audience? I asked the patient. He brings out a sign that says applause and everyone applauds. He brings out another that says laughter and everyone laughs. They act like sheep as if they were slaves and meekly react as they are told to react. You are acting the same way. You are letting outward events and other people dictate to you how you shall feel and how you shall react. You are acting as an obedient slave and obeying promptly when some event or circumstance signals to you. Be angry. Get upset. Or now's the time to feel unhappy. Learning the happiness habit, you become a master instead of a slave. Or as Robert Louis Stevenson said, the habit of being happy enables one to be freed or largely freed from the domination of outward conditions. Your opinion can add to unhappy events. Even in regard to tragic conditions in the most adverse environment, we can usually manage to be happier if not completely happy, by not adding to the misfortune of our own feelings of self-pity, resentment, and our own adverse opinions. How can I be happy? The wife of an alcoholic husband asked me. I don't know, I said, but you can be happier by resolving not to add resentment and self-pity to your misfortune. How can I possibly be happy? Asked the businessman. I have just lost $200,000 on the stock market. I am ruined and disgraced. You can be happier, I said, by not adding your own opinion to the facts. It is a fact that you lost $200,000. It is your opinion that you are ruined and disgraced. I then suggested that he memorize a saying of Epictetus, which has always been a favorite of mine. Men are disturbed not by things that happen, but by their own opinions of things that happen. When I announced that I wanted to be a doctor, I was told that this could not be because my folks had no money. It was a fact that my mother had no money. It was only an opinion that I could never be a doctor. Later, I was told I could never take postgraduate courses in Germany and that it was impossible for a young plastic surgeon to hang out his own shingle and go into business for himself in New York. I did all these things. And one of the things that helped me was that I kept reminding myself that all things 
All these impossibles were opinions, not facts. I not only managed to reach my goals, but I was happy in the process. Even when I had to pawn my overcoat to buy medical books and do without lunch in order to purchase cadavers, I was in love with a beautiful girl. She married someone else. These were facts, but I kept reminding myself that it was merely my opinion that this was a catastrophe and that life was not worth living. I not only got over it, but it turned out it was one of the luckiest things that ever happened to me. The Attitude That Makes for Happiness It has been pointed out earlier that since man is a goal-striving being, he is functioning naturally and normally when he is oriented towards some positive goal and striving towards some desirable goal. Happiness is a symptom of normal, natural functioning, and when man is functioning as a goal striver, he tends to feel fairly happy, regardless of circumstances. My young business executive friend was very unhappy because he had lost $200,000. Thomas A. Edison lost a laboratory worth millions in a fire with no insurance. What in the world will you do? Someone asked. We will start rebuilding tomorrow morning, said Edison. He maintained an aggressive attitude. He was still goal-oriented despite his misfortune. And because he did maintain an aggressive goal-striving attitude, it is a good bet that he was never very unhappy about his loss. Psychologist H.L. Hollingsworth said that happiness requires problems plus a mental attitude that is ready to meet distress with an action plan toward a solution. Much of what we call evil is due entirely to the way men take the phenomenon, wrote William James in the Varieties of Religious Experience. It can so often be converted into a bracing and tonic good by a simple change of the sufferer's inner attitude from one of fear to one of fight. Its sting can so often depart and turn into a relish when, after vainly seeking to shun it, we agree to face about and bear it cheerfully that a man is simply bound in honor with reference to many of the facts that seem at first to disconcert his peace, to adopt his way of escape. Refuse to admit their badness, despise their power, ignore their presence, turn your attention the other way, and so far as yourself are concerned at any rate, though the facts may still exist, their evil characteristics exist no longer. Since you make them evil or good by your own thoughts about them, it is the ruling of your thoughts which proves to be your principal concern. Looking back on my own life, I can see that some of the happiest years were those when I was struggling through as a medical student and living from hand to mouth in my early days of practice. Many times I was hungry. I was cold and ill-clad. I worked hard, a minimum of about 12 hours a day. Many times I did not know from month to month where the money was coming from to pay my rent. But I did have a goal. I had a consuming desire to reach it, and it determined persistence that kept me working toward it. I related all this to the young business executive and suggested that the real cause of his unhappy feeling was not that he had lost $200,000, but that he had lost his goal. He had lost his aggressive attitude and was yielding passively rather than reacting aggressively. I must have been crazy, he told me later to let you convince me that losing the money was not what was making me unhappy, but I'm awfully glad that you did. He stopped moaning about his misfortune, faced about, got himself another goal, and started working toward it. Within five years, he not only had more money than he ever had before in his life, but for the first time, he was in a business that he enjoyed. Practice exercise. Form the habit of reacting aggressively and positively toward threats and problems. 
Form the habit of keeping goal-oriented all the time, regardless of what happens. Do this by practicing a positive, aggressive attitude, both in actual everyday situations that come up and also in your imagination. See yourself in your imagination taking positive, intelligent action towards solving a problem or reaching a goal. See yourself reacting to threats by not running away or evading them, but by meeting them, dealing with them, grappling with them in an aggressive and intelligent manner. Most people are brave only in the dangers to which they accustom themselves, either in imagination or practice, said Bulwer Linton, the English novelist. Systematically practice healthy mindedness. The measure of mental health is the disposition to find good everywhere. Ralph Waldo Emerson. The idea that happiness or keeping one's thoughts pleasant most of the time can be deliberately and systematically cultivated by practicing in a more or less cold-blooded manner strikes many of my patients as a rather incredible, if not ludicrous, when I first suggested. Yet, experience has shown not only that this can be done, but that it is about the only way that the habit of happiness can be cultivated. In the first place, happiness isn't something that happens to you. It is something you yourself do and determine upon. If you wait for happiness to catch up with you or just happen or be brought to you by others, you are likely to have a long wait. No one can decide what your thoughts shall be but yourself. If you wait until circumstances justify your thinking pleasant thoughts, you are likely to wait forever. Every day is a mixture of good and evil. No day or circumstance is completely 100% good. There are elements and facts present in the world and in our personal lives at all times that justify either a pessimistic and grumpy outlook or an optimistic and happy outlook depending on our choice. It is a largely a matter of selection, attention, and decision. Nor is it a matter of being either intellectually honest or dishonest. Good is as real as evil. It is merely a matter of what we choose to give primary attention to and what thoughts we hold in our mind. Deliberately choosing to think pleasant thoughts is more than a palliative. It can have a very practical results. Carl Erskine, the famous baseball pitcher, said that bad thinking got him into more spots than bad pitching. As quoted in Norman Vincent Peale's Faith Made Them Champions, he said, One sermon has helped me overcome pressure better than the advice of any coach. Its substance was that, like a squirrel hoarding chestnuts, we should store up our moments of happiness and triumph so that in crisis we can draw upon these memories for help and inspiration. As a kid, I used to fish at the bend of a little county stream just outside my hometown. I can vividly remember this spot in the middle of a big green pasture surrounded by tall, cool trees. Whenever tension builds up, both on and off the ball field, now I concentrate on this relaxing scene and the knots inside me loosen up. Gene Tunney told how concentrating on the wrong facts almost caused him to lose his first fight with Jack Dempsey. He awoke one night from a nightmare. The vision was of myself bleeding, molded, and helpless, sinking to the canvas and being counted out. I couldn't stop trembling. Right there, I had already lost that ring match, which meant everything to me, the championship. What could I do about this terror? I could guess the cause. I had been thinking about the fight in the wrong way. 
I had been reading the newspapers, and all they had said was how Tooney would lose. Through the newspapers, I was losing the battle in my own mind. Part of the solution was obvious. Stop reading the papers. Stop thinking of the Dempsey menace. Jack's killing punch and ferocity of attack. I simply had to close the doors of my mind to destructive thoughts and divert my thinking to other things. A salesman who needed surgery on his thoughts rather than his nose. A young salesman had made up his mind to quit his job when he consulted me about an operation on his nose. His nose was slightly larger than normal, but certainly not repulsive as he insisted. He felt that prospects were secretly laughing at his nose or repulsed because of it. It was a fact that he had a large nose. It was a fact that three customers had called in to complain of his rude and hostile behavior. It was a fact that his boss had placed him on probation and that he hadn't made a sale in two weeks. Instead of an operation on his nose, I suggested that he perform surgery on his own thinking. For 30 days, he was to cut out all these negative thoughts. He was to completely ignore all the negative and unpleasant facts in his situation and deliberately focus on his attention on pleasant thoughts. At the end of the 30 days, he not only felt better, but he found that prospects and customers had become much more friendly, his sales were steadily increasing, and his boss had publicly congratulated him in a sales meeting. A scientist tests the theory of positive thinking. Dr. Elwood Worcester, in his book, Body, Mind, and Spirit, relates the testimony of a world-famous scientist. Up to my 50th year, I was unhappy, an ineffective man. None of the works on which my reputation rests were published. I lived in a constant sense of gloom and failure. Perhaps my most painful symptom was a blinding headache, which recurred usually two days of the week, during which I could do nothing. I had read some of the literature of New Thought, which at the time appeared to be Bunnacombe, and some statement of William James on the directing attention to what is good and useful and ignore the rest. One saying of his stuck in my mind. We might have to give up our philosophy of evil, but what is that in comparison with gaining life of goodness or words to that effect? Hitherto, these doctrines had seemed to me only mystical theories, but realizing that my soul was sick and growing worse and that my life was intolerable, I determined to put them to the proof. I decided to limit the period of conscious effort to one month as I thought this time long enough to prove its value or its worthiness to me. During this month, I resolved to impose certain restrictions on my thoughts. If I thought of the past, I would try to let my mind dwell only on its happy, pleasing incidents. The bright days of my childhood, the inspiration of my teachers, and the slow revelation of my life work. In thinking of the present, I would deliberately turn my attention to its desirable elements, my home, my opportunities, my solitude gave me to work, and so on. And I resolved to make the utmost use of these opportunities and to ignore the fact that they seemed to lead to nothing. In thinking of the future, I determined to regard every worthy and possible ambition as within my grasp. Ridiculous as this seemed at the time, in view of what has come to me since, I see that only defect of my plan was that it aimed too low and did not include enough. The scientist then tells how his headaches ceased within one week and how he felt happier and better than ever before in his life. But, he adds, 
The outward changes of my life resulting from my change of thought have surprised me more than inward changes, yet they spring from the latter. They were certain eminent men, for example, whose recognition I deeply craved. The foremost of those who wrote me out of a clear sky and invited me to become his assistant. My works have all been published and a foundation has been created to publish all that I may write in the future. The men with whom I have worked have been helpful and cooperative toward me chiefly on account of my changed disposition. Formerly, they would not have endured me. As I look back over all these changes, it seems to me that in some blind way I stumble on a path of life and set forces to working for me which before were against me. How an inventor used happy thoughts. Professor Elmer Gates of the Smithsonian Institution was one of the most successful inventors this country has ever known and a recognized genius. He made a daily practice of calling up pleasant ideas and memories and believed that his help him in his work. If a person wants to improve himself, he said, let him summon those finer feelings of benevolence and usefulness which are called up only now and then. Let him make this regular exercise like swinging dumbbells. Let him gradually increase the time devoted to these physical gymnastics and at the end of the month he will find the change in himself surprising. The alteration will be apparent in his actions and thoughts. Morally speaking, the man will be a great improvement of his former self. Professor Elmer Gates' practice of calling up pleasant ideas and memories is one of the most important aspects of psychocybernetics. When we fail to recall our good moments, our best times, it's as if we've been disconnected from the source of all good things. But as soon as we remember and feel what it is like to be at our best, the switch is turned back on. We are reconnected, and we start experiencing bliss internally and externally. Our thoughts are not only positive, so are our feelings. And oddly enough, most of the circumstances we encounter that would have been negative in the past are now pleasant, harmonious, and vibrant. How to Learn the Happiness Habit Our self-image and our habits tend to go together. Change one, and you will automatically change the other. The word habit originally meant a garment or a clothing. We still speak of writing habits in habiliments. This gives us an insight into the true nature of habit. Our habits are literally garments worn by our personalities. They are not accidental or happenstance. We have them because they fit us. They are consistent with our self-image and our personality pattern. When we consciously and deliberately develop new and better habits, our self-image tends to outgrow the old habits and grow into a new pattern. I can see many patients cringe when I mention changing habitual action patterns or acting out new behavior patterns until they become automatic. They confuse habit with addiction. An addiction is something you feel compelled to and which causes severe withdrawal symptoms. Treatment of addiction is beyond the scope of this book. Habits, on the other hand, are merely reactions and responses that we have learned to perform automatically without having to think or decide. They are performed by our creative mechanism. Fully, 95% of our behavior, feeling, and response is habitual. The pianist does not decide which keys to strike. The dancer does not decide which foot to move where. The reaction is automatic and unthinking. In much the same way, our attitudes, emotions, and beliefs tend to become habitual. In the past, we learned 
that certain attitudes, ways of feeling and thinking were appropriate to certain situations. Now we tend to think, feel, and act the same way whenever we encounter what we interpret as the same sort of situation. What we need to understand is that these habits, unlike addictions, can be modified, changed, or reversed simply by taking the trouble to make a conscious decision and then by practicing or acting out the new response or behavior. The pianist can consciously decide to strike a different key if he chooses. The dancer can consciously decide to learn a new step, and there is no agony about it. It does require constant watchfulness and practice until the new behavior pattern is thoroughly learned. Practice exercise. Habitually, you put on either your right shoe first or your left shoe first. Habitually, you tie your shoes by either passing the right hand lace around behind the left hand lace or vice versa. Tomorrow morning, determine which shoe you put on first and how you tie your shoes. Now consciously decide that for the next 21 days, you are going to form a new habit by putting on the other shoe first and tying your laces in a different way. Each morning, as you decide to put on your shoes in a certain manner, let this simple act serve as a reminder to change the other habitual ways of thinking, acting, and feeling throughout that one day. Say to yourself as you tie your shoes, I am beginning the day in a new and better way. Then consciously decide throughout the day. Number one, I will be as cheerful as possible. Number two, I will try to feel and act a little more friendly toward other people. Number three, I am going to be a little less critical and a little more tolerant of other people, their faults, failings, and mistakes. I will place the best possible interpretations on their actions. Number four, in so far as possible, I am going to act as if successes are inevitable and I already am the sort of personality I want to be. I will practice acting like and feeling like this new personality. Number five, I will not let my own opinion color facts in a pessimistic or negative way. Number six, I will practice smiling at least three times during the day. Number seven, regardless of what happens, I will react as calmly and as intelligently as possible. Number eight, I will ignore completely and close my mind to all those pessimistic and negative facts that I can do nothing to change. Simple? Yes. But each of the above habitual ways of acting, feeling, thinking does have a beneficial and constructive influence on your self-image. Act them out for 21 days. Experience them and see if worry, guilt, hostility have not been diminished and if confidence has not been increased. Now write down five key points to remember. In your case history, list an experience from your past that is explained by the principles given in this chapter.